In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. May the 4th be with you, listeners. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am glad to welcome on composer Kevin Kiner, who has lent his talents to multiple Star Wars series, including, very timely for today, the release of Star Wars The Bad Batch on Disney+. Plus. You know him from The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. He's an extremely prolific composer, not only in Star Wars, but across many different media, including TV, film, and video games, and much more. And Kiner talks about his musical inspirations, involvement in Star Wars-related projects, and what's next for him. So I invite you to listen in and enjoy this episode of Notably Disney with composer Kevin Kiner. Kevin Kiner is responsible for translating the epic feel of the Star Wars music universe to popular television series, including Star Wars The Clone Wars, for which he recently won an Annie Award for, uh, as well as for Star Wars Rebels. And now we're about to see a new phase of Kevin's work with the release of Star Wars The Bad Batch on Disney+, Plus, for which he is also handling the score. And Kevin is here to discuss his career and work for Lucasfilm. Welcome to Notably Disney. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'd love for us to begin, as I ask many of my guests, if you could maybe talk a little bit about your origin story as a musician. I understand uh, that guitar was one of your main instruments of choice at a young age, and that was also readily apparent in seeing uh, the studio in which you record. Can you talk a little bit about your musical roots, Kevin? Sure. Um, I Yeah, I grew up... You know, I was kind of a rock and roll guitar player playing in garage bands, doing cover tunes of like Led Zeppelin and uh, Yes, The Who, um, and all kinds of uh, obscure British bands as, as well. Um, and um, I was told by my mom and 
that I couldn't be a musician. You know, she really encouraged me when I was playing in, in, you know, in junior high and high school. And when I was in bands, I mean, we had all the rehearsals at my house and stuff. She was into that, but it was, it was clear, like, yeah, this is fine until you go to college, then you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and that was the two choices. And, and so, um, I went to UCLA and I was pre-med. I, I was doing pretty well, actually. I was gonna go to med school. Um, but I started gigging around town, uh, around LA. And you know, when you grow up in a smaller town, I grew up in Escondido, California, which is near San Diego. Um, you know, I was, I was hyper aware that I was not the best guitar player in Escondido. Now it happened, there was a guy named George Daring D-O-E-R-I-N-G, who is now the first call guitarist in Los Angeles and has been for about 30 years. Uh, he's on more movies than any guitar player in history, and he probably works more than any musician in local 47. But he taught me how to play guitar. He's a couple of years older than me. And I was very aware that I was not even the best guitar player in Escondido, uh, because he was. And... Um, so I, I thought, wow, what's going to happen when I go to L.A.? Uh, you know, I'm going to be really terrible, you know, compared to those cats. Well, it turned out George was one of the greatest guitar players in, on earth. And also, I started working when I was in college, and I started getting gigs. Um, so I gigged around just to make extra money my sophomore, junior year at UCLA. And then I got a job going on the road um, with a group called the Sophisticates. Um, and they were like, um, they were sort of like the Supremes and I was their music director. Uh, it was three girls and they sang and danced and it was very similar to the Supremes kind of a thing. Um, and they kind of had a following in Asia. And I, so we had a New Year's Eve gig my, after my senior fall quarter at UCLA. Uh, so I got a passport and we did a New Year's Eve gig in Indonesia and in Jakarta. And then that turned into a six month tour. So you could see that I didn't finish my senior year at UCLA as pre-med. Um, and I really started doing a, a lot of, not just playing guitar, but being their music director, which entailed conducting and doing arrangements for them. Uh, doing arranging is really a natural kind of stepping stone into composing. Uh, so once I started composing or started arranging then. I, I really liked it. And, and I saw that I was much better at that than I was as a guitar player. Um, I, I just felt it was more of a natural ability and I could come up with like string ideas and trumpet ideas or saxophone or French horn, whatever it was. You know, I liked doing that. And, and I got really positive feedback early on from my, my arrangements. And um, so I got married uh, in Asia. My wife is from the Philippines. We met in Manila. Um, and I decided to not be a road musician, so we moved to L.A., and uh, about six months after we moved to L.A., I, I got a gig doing a theme for a television show called The World's Funniest Commercial Goofs, and uh, that was a blooper show uh, with Robert Guillaume and Emmanuel Lewis, oh, wow. who were the hosts, <laughs> so that goes back, and uh, that guy, that producer, then got a, t a TV series. 
and he took me with him. Um, there were other producers on that next show. The next show was a blooper show as all, well. It was called Fallops, Bleeps, and Blunders with Steve Lawrence and Don Rickles were the hosts of that. Don Rickles was a marvelously kind man, by the way, a really nice guy. Always asked me what I was doing, how my career was going and stuff. Um, but anyhow, the producers from that show, there were like three other producers and they all got their own shows. Um, and one of those was The Adventures of Superboy. And that became my first dramatic series and my first uh, foray into the John Williams milieu of composing. And, you know, I heard John Williams when I was at UCLA, when I went to the films and, you know, when I went to Superman and when I went to Star Wars and I said, I want to sound like that, you know, that was a, that was definitely in my, it was a target for me, you know, that was the sound I wanted to have. Um, so I bought every John Williams score I could find. I, I researched him. I found out who he liked, you know, I knew he liked Korngold quite a lot and Stravinsky and, and uh, you know, the great composer. So I started studying who he studied. Um, and, you know, so that was in the eighties, you know, I kept doing that and kept doing that. And, and then um, got the audition in 2006 for Clone Wars and uh, and won the audition out of several really, really good composers. A couple guys I, I won't mention, but guys who I really, really respect who auditioned against me. Um, I just think I was more steeped in, you know, in John Williams maybe than other guys. Um, and, and just, um, you know, I'd studied it a lot. I, I don't know. I, I just, maybe I just connected with Clone Wars. I, I don't know why George Lucas, you know, chose me and Dave Filoni, but i um, sure glad they did. So there, that's a 10 minute history of Kevin Kiner. <laughs> hey, I thought you really distilled all of that down um, really well. And, and you're touching on so many different points I'd love to uncover further. And and one of the things that I had read in, in learning more about you, Kevin, was just your real intense um, examination of John Williams' Star Wars scores. And you referenced that um, just a couple of moments ago. I guess I'm wondering from the standpoint of one, how you access those and two, why that mattered so much to you as an up and coming musician and composer. Well, you know, so I, this is the example I, I like to use. Um, as a guitarist, there were several guys who I really liked the way they sounded. One was uh, Wes Montgomery, another was George Benson. He actually, again, it's like studying the student. Uh, George Benson loved Wes Montgomery as, as well. Uh, Larry Carlton, who was a really great kind of fusion player back when fusion was hip and new and fun and great, amazing. Um, and he so on the Steely Dan records and stuff. So when I, I, I would literally, and Jimmy Page from you know, even earlier on when I was in high school, I would literally learn the solo, like to Stairway to Heaven, say, you know, not the first part, but the actual, the rock and roll kind of distorted guitar. So I learned that note for note. Well, why do you learn that? It's, it's not so much so you can play that when you play Stairway to Heaven, because I was never in a band that played Stairway to Heaven because we couldn't find a singer who could sing that high. Um, 
So the reason to learn that solo is to, is to get Jimmy Page under your fingers. And the hope is when you play a guitar solo then, maybe some of his licks come through or some of, you know, some of it's physical, some of it's mental, some of it's tonal, you know, and, and so a part of that kind of becomes part of you. And, and then you take, and, and this is how all the great musicians, Mozart did it with Haydn, every, you know, we've all done it. John Williams did it with Korngold. So, you know, he, he studied deeply, studied Korngold and, and, and he, he studies everyone. I mean, John sits at the piano in the evenings and practices to this day, I believe, you know, and just Beethoven, Korngold, whatever it is. Um, so you immerse yourself in this, not so that you can copy them, but so that you are sort of, their sound is familiar to you and how to do that. How do you pull off that sound? Like, like I said, when I heard Star Wars, I was a guitar player. I, I wasn't an orchestral arranger or anything like that. I knew nothing about that, um, but I knew I loved that sound. So I was chasing that sound for a very long time. And hopefully what happens is that I've sort of made it my own because I don't want to mimic someone. I, I want to take the best of what they do and put that DNA in along with my emergent with my DNA and come up with something that that is uniquely Kevin Kiner. Sure. Well, and it sounds like because you were so well versed in John Williams style and and touches that that amounted to you landing the gig for Clone Wars and kind of building upon what you were just saying there, Kevin, I guess I'm wondering how you navigate the bal that balance per se between adding your own touches and also incorporating Williams' own themes within your score. Well, that's a really interesting point um, because I'm not positive that I got the gig because I was well-versed in John Williams' style. Uh, I, I know that George Lucas was a fan of the music of CSI Miami, which I was scoring at that time. And I believe that's why I was one of the composers that he chose to audition. Um, George always wants to push the boundaries of things. And I, I know he, he did not want the new composer for Clone Wars just to rehash John Williams music. Now, he, he was smart enough to know the flavor of it needed to be there. But I, I think a lot of the, re well, what happened in Clone Wars was I, I took that experience of what I was doing, which was extremely electronic and extremely kind of at that time, cutting edge um, hybrid orchestral slash electronic slash world because Miami was in Cuba and, and, or near Cuba. And, and so the Cuban music was sometimes an influence in the score to Miami. And, and I know George wanted a, a, a world presence to be happening in, in Clone Wars. So, you know, how I balance that is, yeah, that's, I don't know. I, I do it because, <laughs> you know, I don't just, I don't just go down, down, da, 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 and put some congas going, you know, I, I, I don't know what I do. I just, I, I, I do combine elements in using my sensibility. And, and I, I think you have to have a grasp of John Williams sound. You also have to have a grasp of electronic and, uh, you know, in world music sounds as well. And somehow those got 
mixed up in my head and <laughs> came out in the score. Well, it served you quite well. And, and I know you talked about how well acquainted you were with William's Star Wars scores. Are there scores of his outside of these major brands or um, properties that people are very familiar with that have also really been influential to you as a composer? When John Williams was, you, when we found out that John Williams was going to do the NBC News theme, we all kind of wondered why was he doing that? Um, and there, then he comes up with this amazing melody uh, and something, you know, that wasn't just a irregular trite news theme, but was, was a great composition in and unto itself. So I, I think that just kind of shows, you know, the depth of his range and, you know, memoirs of Geisha and, um, and, and uh, Schindler's List and, Jurassic Park. I, I remember going to Jurassic Park and hearing the first melody and, and going, oh, that's great. He's done it again. And then there's two more melodies uh, uh, that are just as iconic and, and tuneful and um, earth shattering <laughs> in that movie. And I, you know, I, I sort of was saying to myself, oh, come on, you can't put them all in one movie, but he did. It's an impressive body of work. And and, and thinking about your work in particular, I, you, you're talking earlier about um, composing for shows like CSI Miami. And I'm wondering, Kevin, when you um, were offered the opportunity to, to score Clone Wars and you knew that you had a certain number of episodes to score, how, do you, how does that knowledge of being in that context for a television series influence the tone you strike early on knowing that it could have perhaps be a foundation or repercussions for how you experiment with music later on in a season? Um, you know, the, it's interesting. Uh, one thing that I'd like to drive home at you uh, is that I am really happy with the form of like that Clone Wars and, and other shows I'm working on. Uh, Feature films are great and you, and you get a really big budget and you get a, a big orchestra all the time. Um, but there's something about um, the form of long form television where, you know, I, I wound up doing seven seasons of Clone Wars where you can set up themes for characters like Ahsoka. And, you know, early on, I, I knew Ahsoka was gonna be incredibly important and I have three themes for her. I have Ahsoka's victorious theme. I have her regular theme, which is the one everybody kind of knows. But the other two are are quite tuneful and and, and quite memorable as well, I believe. Um, and being able to set that up so that when she comes back, um, I don't just use that one theme because that can be a little trite, you know, if you're scoring a series, it's like, oh, here's a soca. And and it's, that if you have more than one theme for a character, um, you can you can still hit her or him in a more elegant way. Uh, and it will still be memorable and it give the audience shivers but it's not just hammering them over the head. It's like, oh, here's the dun, 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 da, da, dun, dun, da, da, you know. And 
uh, so that's what I really like about the, uh, the form of television. And I mean, I do get to use an orchestra in, in Clone Wars, um, not for every single episode, but you know, it's, it's part of the thing. And we use live musicians almost every episode. So it's, uh, and, and continuing on with Bad Batch, we're doing that. So uh, it's a great experience and it's, it's a great form. It, it's something that, that has a very long life to it. There's a, um, there's a satisfaction to setting up the template and, and being able to explore that template and then and then starting to push it further and further on. Uh, if you listen to the first 10 episodes of Clone Wars and the last 10 episodes of Clone Wars, they're quite different. And, uh, you know, it's the same composer. So what happened in between those times was there were four seasons or five seasons, you know, another 100 episodes or 80 episodes in there that where we grew and we, we, and, and we went on a journey. We went on a musical journey. It was like, let's try this. Let's try something different. Let's try Bulgarian choir. Okay, we did that. Let's try some electronic elements. Okay, we did that. Let's try some big drums. Okay, we got a lot of big drums, but we'd never stay static. Um, and that's, you know, it's really, it's challenging, but it's, it's super fun and it keeps, it keeps my job really interesting. Well, and it sounds like it also provides you as the composer with room to be very playful and experiment and, and see how different styles may work within the context of a show that similarly evolves over time, much like your own development as a musician. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I didn't get into this business to be, you know, make a lot of money. Um, I, I got into it because I can't do anything else but write music just emotionally. I, I just, you know, I had dropped out of college because that was, you know, I was just in the wrong path. I, I mean, I would have made a lot of money as a doctor or whatever, but, and I probably, well, I probably would have got sued. I'm a, I would have been a horrible doctor, but whatever. I, I got into it because of my passion for it. And part of that, what feeds that passion is growth. Um, and I've been doing this for, you know, over 35 years now. And if I hadn't grown, I, I would be really bored and I would be a lousy composer. So I, uh, it's, it's very important to me to keep growing, to keep changing things. It was really important with, to Dave Filoni as well. You know, Dave, Dave is always pushing me. Um, he's a great director, a great, a, a great collaborator. Kevin, could you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about uh, creating the theme for Ahsoka and more recently we've heard it uh, translated in a different context within the Mandalorian. What's, what are your thoughts on material that you've created in one context now finding life in a different area of the Star Wars universe? Well, you know, now I'm in the position of being the one who's part of the canon <laughs> and I have a you know an Academy Award-winning composer in Ludwig Gordonson who takes my theme and respects it and does a fantastic job with it. Um, that's really satisfying. I mean, it's amazing. I you know I'm to an extent in the position of John Williams a little bit, where I you know I've set up a theme that's become very iconic, and now somebody else is is taking it and running with it and. Uh, 
it's it's weird it's it really is weird uh it's great it's it's an honor and it's fantastic but it, i never thought of that would happen you know well i think it's probably a testament too to the the reach and appreciation that people have of the clone wars and uh, we mentioned uh, before the recording that uh, we're recording this uh, in the middle of April. Just a few days ago, you won an Annie Award for Best Music TV Media um, for Clone Wars. T tell me about the reaction when you got the news. <laughs> well, it's, you know, in the COVID years, it's very, oh, it's very bizarre. I, I, it's so unfortunate in a way. I mean, I'm very, very pleased to have won and, and, uh, you know, I was up against like David Arnold, who was a guy I've co-written written with and who I have immense respect for as one of the great composer, film composers alive, you know, did Stargate and Independence Day and so many of the Bond films. And he's a great melody writer, really a great melody writer and, and composer. Um, yeah, and he was nominated in the same category. That was weird too. T to have won was, was fantastic. Um, the moment itself, first of all, I don't know why, but I'd forgotten that the awards were that day. So I was actually about, I was putting on my rash guard, which is like a wetsuit. I was surfing uh, and I was just about to get into the waves and, and I, my assistant texted me, hey, you won an Annie? And I'm like, oh, cool. And then I went and caught some waves. It, it was... <laughs> It's far removed from wearing a tux and sitting in Royce Hall at UCLA as you could be. And I've been there many times, you know, I've been nominated a bunch and it's really nice. You know, I've met so many cool composers. You know, it's a shame that we couldn't all go and hang out and have a party and stuff like that. Um, I, again, even the acceptance speech was such a bizarre experience. And if you watch my acceptance speech, I mean, I didn't know I'd won, you know, we had to, we had to turn those darn things in before we knew. So it's, it was very difficult for me to be thanking everyone there and thanking, you know, I'm so happy I won when I didn't know that I'd won and I'm not a very good actor. So acting like I'd won was very, very difficult and probably comes across that way if you watch my acceptance speech. And I, I forgot to, you know, one of the most important people in my career and my life, a very good friend of mine, Robert Messenger, who's my agent, I forgot to thank him. And here I am sitting in the comfort of my own house. And I can't remember that. Like, the whole world's turned upside down. But anyhow, thank you, Robert. You're the greatest agent anyone could ever imagine having. Well, let it be known that uh, he was thanked on Notably Disney. So you, you, you have that covered. You are okay, Kevin. <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, you know, another thing you brought up that I, I, I wanted to touch on was you, you said, you know, I know Clone Wars is beloved by the fans. And I also am aware that my themes are part of that. And, and there's been very positive fan, fan feedback about my music. And that's such an honor. And I think part of the reason for that is is that I, I have an immense respect for, for Star Wars and for the music that I do for Star Wars. And, you know, John Williams set up a game plan and a template 
that is very heavy on strong melodies and transcendent melodies for characters and for the show. You know, the force theme is one of the greatest themes ever written. You know, it, it's, to me, it's the best of his Star Wars themes and there are many great, there's Yoda's themes as the main theme to Star Wars and Princess Leia's theme. There's, there's, there's Luke and Leia's theme. There, there are many, there's, now there's Ray's theme. Um, there are many great themes he wrote, but the Force theme to me is the greatest theme of Star Wars. And, and he wrote that. And I always go back to that DNA of what makes that such a strong melody and what that is. And I try to channel that when I'm writing my themes. I, I, don't, I don't imitate the Force theme, but I imitate the effect it has as best I can. And that is the kind of respect I treat my themes with. And, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've always been a melody guy. And, um, you know, so I, I've been able to come up with some I'm very happy with. I, I love Sabine's theme that I wrote, uh, Hera's theme from, uh, from Star Wars Rebels, I think is very strong. And as a teaser, I, I think I have a really strong theme coming out for one of the very, very interesting characters uh, in, in um, The Bad Batch. So be ready on May the 4th. Exactly. Well, can we maybe disentangle that notion a little bit further, Kevin, in terms of those core elements of melodies like the force theme and ultimately what you've carried certain principles into your respective themes what are some of those attributes that you think are quite distinctive and and perhaps translate across different star wars contexts well you know when i was just saying that to you i i i was sort of thinking oh he's gonna want to know what i did and i mean that is like you're starting to get into metaphysics now you know i i don't know what i did it's more of a thing, you know, I, I love playing, I was a guitarist and all guitar players love to shred, you know, we love playing solos. And, um, you know, that's when you come up with a solo, you don't know why it's a good solo. You have a feeling, you know, and you're trying to communicate that. And, it, and it's the same thing when I, when you write a melody, I, I you know, I, I once saw an interview of Henry Mancini and he's playing the beginning to uh, Moon River, which was probably the greatest melody he wrote ever. And he, he's, he's talking to the interviewer and he's playing the melody. Dun, da, 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 da. And he got this look in his eyes and I know, he goes, look how simple it is. You know, he goes, the first part is all on the white keys. And I know the look in his eyes he is wondering why the hell he can't do that again. <laughs> and I mean, that's a really tall order because he wrote a lot of great things, but that one was super, super great, you know? So why can't he reach that level of Moon River? Why can't he read, you know, write another unbelievable transcendent um, gift to humanity like that? And you know, we don't know why we, we, there's a feeling. So part of what Henry Mancini was doing, he was talking about the simplicity of that melody and yet it's not trite. It, it, it's, 
and it's the same thing. The force theme is extremely simple and yet it's extremely impactful. And, and so I know those elements have to be there. I know I have to strive for simplicity and yet I have to come up with something new. And I mean, it's, it's really a tall order, I'll tell you. Um, and at the best of times, it just happens when you don't even know it. You know, it's, if you think about it too hard, it's, it's, you blow it and, and you don't write something good. It, it's so much better when it just, like a guitar solo, man, you just, you're just, you just blow. You're, oh man, that was amazing. How did I do that? You know, and that's, that's the best stuff usually. It sounds like oh, the answer. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know what I did. <laughs> I know. I know. You know how I approached it, but I, I don't know where it came from. Right. Well, and I think there's that almost effervescent, organic quality to strong music, where it's sometimes hard to pinpoint the origins, but when it happens, it and it feels right. It just is. Could we talk about the Bad Batch for a moment? I realize it's um, as we're debuting it. The the show is just um, premiering because um, this episode is debuting on May the 4th. Um, so to, to coincide with the release, you, you mentioned with as Clone Wars evolved and how you experimented with different styles of world music and, and different types, genres of music as well. Are, are there any elements of the score that you have written thus far that are perhaps distinct from prior Star Wars work that you can talk about? Yeah, for sure, there, there are some. Um... One of the models that Dave Filoni, when he's kicking off Bad Batch, gave us was the Dirty Dozen or Kelly's Heroes or Guns of Navarone. And this is kind of this caper, uh, misfits gang of, of guys that have special abilities. And, and yet they're, you know, there's a, there's a, they're, they're misfits, and um, I think Dirty Dozen, in a way, is, is the best of all those examples. And so there is that element. In fact, I go really, really old school, Kelly's Heroes um, and, and uh, uh, Guns of Navarone and, and Dirty Dozen in some of, the, some of the scenes that come up in Bad Batch, uh, because... You know, I think it's appropriate, and and so you'll hear a bit of that old school thing coming in, uh, a bit of the you know whoever that was, whether that was Dimitri Tiomkin or uh, Max Steiner or Bernard Herrmann or one of those cats way back, you know, who was doing those. I I, I forget actually the composer of Dirty Dozen. Um, so we kind of, kind of go back to that sound. Now the whole score. Obviously, it doesn't sound that way, but yeah, every once in a while, when there's a caper on, they're sneaking around or something like that. We do that. Um, I also bring some soloistic elements in. Uh, I, I play this instrument that's called a guitar viol. A guy in in the LA area makes uh, named Jonathan Wilson. He's kind of invented this thing. I mean, it has its roots in in the predecessor to the violin, which was called a viola da gamba. And it was a six-stringed fretted instrument, like a guitar is fretted, and it also had six strings rather than four. But you bow it like a, a violin. And uh, anyhow, I play this instrument, and I, I play it on several cues uh, in Bad Batch. And uh, we've been working on the soundtrack, and it won't be the first 
cut that's released with the soundtrack, but it will be in following episodes. It, it will be one of the cues that's released where I'm I'm playing a very soloistic, um, almost Middle Eastern sounding vibe on it. And then there's a vocalist in the queue too. And it's, it's very atmospheric. So it's very different from Star Wars, very different from stuff I've done from Star Wars too. Um, now that's not saying that the whole score as a whole, you, you wouldn't get that, but these are some specifics that I'm, I'm pointing out because it, 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 they excite me and there's some new things. That does sound exciting. And it, and it sounds like from what you're saying that your score will be released uh, across multiple batches. Is that uh, what I'm picking up on? Yeah, that's correct. So basically to, to whet people's appetite as they consume more content. Yeah, either, yeah, as either after, I, I don't know if the, the soundtrack is coming out before the episodes are released, but, you know, so I, I think we'll, with, along with three or four episodes, I, I, I don't really know, it's up to the Disney record company people, um, who are really fantastic to work with, and it, I mean, it's really cool that they're doing this, because, you know, in prior years, you know, we had trouble getting soundtracks released. Um, and I, I think companies like Disney are, have become really smart and they understand that the consumer of their, their visual media is also a consumer of soundtracks. And by putting them out at the same time as the episodes are released or just before the episodes, it really kind of connects you with the show in a different way. And you've got some cool tunes to listen to I, I mean, I think it's just really fun. I'm, I'm so, it's so gratifying to have this happen. Absolutely. Well, and it allows viewers <laughs> slash listeners to engage with your work on a different level <clears throat> outside of the context of the visual media, as you're saying, um, that they're yeah. mo most familiar with. And th that has been a really effective strategy if we look at Mandalorian and also WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier, these kind of tentpole um, Disney Plus shows having after each episode the music being released. So I'm I'm glad to hear that um, they're seeing the value in in the Bad Batch and, and your work. Yeah, and it's really forward thinking of the company too. You know, and we we like to complain when companies are not, you know, embracing technology. Well, here's an example of you know really kind of being at the forefront, and and it's. I think it's great. It's it's one of the one of the perks of living in our time. Absolutely. Well, last question for you before I ask you some Disney opinion related questions. I know you are a very busy person. You have a variety of projects on your plate. And I, what I love about your professional website is that you have a lot of examples of your work and for folks to listen to it. And you also organize it based on genre and instrumentation. What, what can folks continue to expect from you in addition to the Bad Batch? What are, what's on your docket? Oh man, well, since, you know, since they, we've, they've started filming again and uh, the live action stuff is coming back. And so now I'm working on, on season three or of Narcos Mexico, it's season six of Narcos, having a really great time with that. Just really, really fun episodes, really fun music. Um, and then, uh, Titans and Doom Patrol, which are on HBO Max, which are DC properties. Um, you know, I just, 
uh, I just got to, I'm working on Titans right now, um, season three, and there's Superboy. I mean, he's a different kind of Superboy. Uh, uh, I think he's half Lex Luthor and half Superman's DNA somehow. Uh, it makes him really com complex. And here I scored Superboy in the 80s. Uh, so to come back and score him again is really, really, really cool. And you might find a hint of that previous melody in there. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that's fun. And, uh, and Doom Patrol is hilariously fun in, in a very hip way. Uh, just absolutely one of my favorite shows to score. Uh, and, and we're starting work on that. Um, and then I just completed season two of um, City on a Hill with Kevin Bacon. And uh, as in all three degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever that is, I'm connected with the universe in that way now. Um, and really, really happy. I play that guitar viola instrument quite a lot on uh, City on a Hill. Um, and uh, my sons are composing with me and they they deserve a lot of the credit in season seven of Clone Wars, as well as Titans, Doom Patrol and City on a Hill. Uh, they're really uh, they're really good composers in their own right, as we as we see, because, you know, we don't tell the producers, you know, who, who worked on what. Uh, I mean, I, I oversee everything ultimately, but uh, a lot of the positive feedback, even going back to Hell on Wheels when I did that show, a lot of the positive feedback came from cues that were written by my sons. Uh, so that's really gratifying because that means I'm not just being a proud dad, but, you know, the producers and directors and audiences really. I mean, look at one of the favorite themes in Rebels was Thrawn's theme, and that was written by my, my oldest son, Sean. You know, so they're absolute you know, validation that it's not nepotism, you know, I mean, it, he's, he's a really good composer in his own right. That's awesome. Very illustrative of the Kiner legacy living on. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because, you know, I mean, it doesn't happen very often in the composing world. I mean, Joel Goldsmith, who was uh, Jerry's son, was a great composer, is also one of my best friends. Joel has passed away, but I, I worked with Joel on uh, Stardate SG-1. And, uh, you know, I, I helped him out when he, he went and did a movie called uh, Call the Conqueror. And he asked me to, you know, score the episodes of Stargate SG-1 um, because he was working on that film and stuff. And, you know, Joel and his father were great talents and Jerry Goldsmith, one of the greatest composers ever to live. Uh, and you know, Joel carried that on really well, uh, but there's not a lot of examples of that. Uh, you have Peter Bernstein, who's Elmer Bernstein's son. Um, he, he was, he, he's a really good composer, but that's about it that I know of. I mean, I'm sure there's others, but I, I'm not aware. Any examples for sure. Well, let's wrap up, Kevin, uh, with some music-related questions that I actually ask of all of my guests who have a musical background or, or an interest. And uh, the first one for you is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? 
I would have to say uh, Jungle Book, probably. Is there a particular reason that one stood out to you? Uh, you know, I saw it when I was a kid in the, I think I saw it in a drive-in theater. I could be wrong, but um, yeah. And isn't, isn't that with the Bare Necessities? Isn't that from Jungle Book? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and I, I mean, there was, there was, I, I just remember that was really, really, uh, uh, I was pretty young too. I mean, what year did Jungle Book come out? That was 67. Okay, so I would have been nine, you know. So uh, yeah, that was, I, I was a, that was a real target audience probably, I, I would imagine when that, that thing came. I bet I did see it. In, I bet that was a drive-in theater if it was 67. <laughs> we used to go to a drive-in in my hometown and it was really fun. I mean, I remember putting the sound box on the window and running, running, you know, during the intermission to the, you know, to get popcorn at the shack where they sold it and stuff like that. It was good childhood memories. Sounds like it. Kevin, I mean, of course, also, Go ahead. you know, uh, Fantasia was a big deal too. Oh, for sure. I mean, from a musical standpoint, you can't get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, and I mean, I, I for sure didn't, I, that was a great, you know, things like that, you know, to expose younger children and, and the audience as a whole to classical music in a way that makes it really accessible with visuals like that. I'm positive that had a big impact. I mean, I say that I'm not classically trained because, you know, I grew up playing rock and roll. And yet, I mean, I, I definitely listened and watched Fantasia a lot. So I yeah. bet stuff snuck in there that I didn't even know about, you know? Sure, yeah, kind of a subtle impression. Kevin, is there a Disney song that most recently got stuck in your head? Um, probably from Little Mermaid, I, I would imagine. I mean, Under the Sea is really cool. Uh, you know, I, I love all the Ashman and Mencken stuff. Um, I mean, even back to Little Shop of Horrors, those guys were insane, you know? And then mm. what they did, you know, for, for Little Mermaid and then uh, all the stuff from um, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Beauty and the Beast song itself, you, you talk about a very, very good, simple, but super, super iconic melody. That, that song, Beauty and the Beast, is, is one of the greats as well. Um, I, I also would say that uh, what Elton John and did on Lion King, um, one of my great probably the best experience I've ever had in a theater, uh, a Broadway theater, was watching the production of Lion King. And that opening, holy smokes, just unbelievable pageantry and great, great tunes. Um, great combination of the world, African feel with tunefulness that, that you know, we can understand also that everybody in the world can understand, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's some great stuff in, in that, in Lion King. Oh yeah, and a universal 
uh, quality to it as well as I think you're yeah. speaking to. Yeah. Third music question for you is what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Um, you know, I, I'm going to have to go again with Jungle Book, but the new one uh, in, by John Debney. Uh, I don't know if it's underrated or just under the radar. I, I mean, I don't know that it's been rated that much by anyone um, for I don't know what reason, but John Debney is one of the great film composers alive right now. And he hit that thing out of the park. If you, you know, you, you get that Jungle Book, I mean, just buy that soundtrack because track after track is just fantastic. Um, he's just really good. Oh yeah. Well, and he carried the spirit of the score um, and even some of the songs from the 1967 film into the more uh, modern version, which was, there was a, there's a timeless quality to it. And um, I, I'm totally with you there. Yeah. I mean, he, he did those, but yeah, but I, I mean, the main title wolves, right. Love the Jungle. I mean, there's some really, really, uh, The Rain's Return. There's some awesome stuff on, on that soundtrack. I, I, I forget all of it, but no. And uh, yeah, that, that guy, John is is a real, I mean, there, there are guys who, you know, there's there's John Williams who's above everyone else. and But there are the other the guys like Alan Silvestri and John Debney are pretty close on his heels. Not, you know, John is so far above everyone, but uh, when the next tier, I mean, and it, it's only a next tier because John's alive, you know? I mean, it, it, when you're alive in the era of Mozart, you know, you, you're gonna be second place, <laughs> no matter who you are. You know, even if you're Haydn, because Haydn was second place, you know, to Mozart. And, and so, you know, I mean, John's above everybody else, but man, John Debney, Alan Silvestri, Alexander Desplat. Just there's some there's some very, very good composers out there. I feel like you're talking about the Mount Rushmore of film composers right now. <laughs> the ones alive. You know, you know, oh. the funny thing, so if I were to make that list when I was coming up in the 80s, it would have been John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Maurice Shar, um, um, the mission of Ennio Morricone and John Barry. So that's that's the Mount Rushmore from that era, you know? Sure. And and now, yeah, with the, the other cats I just mentioned, that they're the current Mount Rushmore. Well, and if there's a, a Mount Rushmore of Star Wars uh, music, I think you're you're right up there with with Mr. Williams. So thank you very much. That's a great honor. Last question for you in terms of um, music questions. And actually, this is a random question um, that I have not asked of any other guests, but I think it's very appropriate for you, Kevin. So uh, if you could create a theme for a Star Wars character who does not already have a theme, who would it be for and what would the sound be like? So I'm gonna cheat this a little. It would be Darth Maul and I've already done it. <laughs> so, but I mean, that was a cool one to do because, 
you know, you go to the films and, and John, I mean, there's Duel of the Fates, but that's not really Darth Maul's theme. Um, when we first see Maul, there's some whispers and stuff like that. But, you know, and so we had a conversation about this and the elements that I did put in there were, were vocals. Uh, so that was going off. I mean, literally, John Williams only put some whispers in when we first see Darth Maul. Uh, but that's a really rich character and I got to explore him a lot in Rebels and, and Clone Wars and, and stuff. That, um, and I, I'm really glad that I, that I did. And there was one that, you know, was from the films and didn't really have a theme and I, I, I got to do his theme. Oh, I, I'll still take that answer. <laughs> I think, um, no, I think that's a really nice example of how you're able to build upon um, an existing character for sure. Yeah. Finally, Kevin, how can how can folks follow your work um, in terms of the various media, social media, um, products and releases? Um, so I, I don't really sell anything, but if you if if you want to just see what I'm doing, uh, my website is kevinkiner.com. And I'm not so great about I, I've been updating it recently. Uh, but I, I get so busy, um, but it, it, it just has, it's received a nice refresh in the last month or so. Uh, definitely. I will be putting more music up from bad batch as that comes up. And then also I'll be adding some cues from, um, from season two of city on a hill and from narcos Mexico and from Titans and from doom patrol. Um, I've written a new show with my sons, which is going to come out on Netflix called um, Trese, T-R-E-S-E. And it's a Filipino um, mythological show. It's kind of, kind of horror slash mythology. Uh, it's animated. Um, and we went to way, my, my sons are 50% Filipino. Uh, my wife is from the Philippines, and we met when I was on the road, been married 38 years now. Uh, so they really enjoyed that. We went to some very, very obscure places in the Philippines and recorded some choirs there. Some very spooky music where you ha they had to have the, uh, uh, it had to be at a funeral. They can only sing these songs at, uh, if there is the bones of the dead there which is crazy uh, so we use some of those chants and stuff with their permission um yeah and so we'll be putting that on the the website when when trese comes out um so yeah if you want to and and it's all free to listen to um just to see what i'm up to Wonderful. Well, uh, definitely a wealth of work there, Kevin. Um, really appreciate your time. And I must say, may the fourth and may the force uh, be with you as the Bad Batch uh, debuts on Disney+. Plus. Really appreciate your time. All right. Sing it, brother. Thank you. And many thanks to Kevin for joining me on Notably Disney. And as a reminder to everyone, Star Wars The Bad Batch is now on Disney Plus for your viewing pleasure and certainly listening pleasure thanks to Kevin's composing. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. 
I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.